Welcome to Hope for the Heart. I thank you for joining us today as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful book called the Book of Revelation. It's found in the very back of the New Testament of your Bible, and I don't ever want to uh, presume upon anyone that they uh, automatically know these things. Uh, I remember in church one day I was talking about the turning to a certain book and I saw people, it was in the New Testament, and they were going to the Old Testament, looking, going to the index. They just did not know. So that showed me something. But anyway, I want to talk about this church, uh, this uh, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. We found listed in actually uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, when John says in his writing, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Uh, and so this is one of the seven churches. These are called the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so I want to read to you today uh, this third church, which is the message to uh, Pergamum. And the Word of God reads, if you want to follow along, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, uh, the Word of God reads, beginning in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus, you also have some who hold in the same way the the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. Now, again, we're coming to these seven churches of Asia Minor as we go through the book of Revelation. John has been told to write the things that are, uh, which are the things he saw, which was in chapter 1, the vision, when he said, write, therefore, the things which you have seen. And then we're in the second part of that, which he is in the process of giving us the things which are, and that will take us through the church age. And then the third thing will begin in Revelation chapter 4, when we begin looking at the things which shall take place after these things. So we're in these things which are the church age, and we're looking at this third church. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that this letter to the church of Pergamos, or Pergamum, uh, is actually a real church. There are historic churches, all seven of them, churches that really did exist. Their messages uh, were given directly to a specific these seven specific churches because of very special issues that the Lord wants to draw attention to or bring their focus to as these churches look at this. There are issues at hand and they're very, very uh, commanding of our attention as far as what are these issues in hand. But I want you to know these letters go beyond these churches as do the epistles of the New Testament, which were typically written to churches or individuals, and also they go beyond those churches and individuals, meaning they are applicable to all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also these letters, 
describe not only a single church in history, like this church at Pergamum uh, is talking about this specific church at this specific time uh, around 90 A.D., uh, but it also represents a kind of church that exists throughout all of the history of the church. And so they're very instructive for us. They're very informative. And they, I think they command our attention to look at them and to see what this is that is actually written in this letter. Now, this church is engaged in compromise. The first letter, you remember, was written to Ephesus. The church was that have left its first love. The second letter was written to Smyrna, which we saw last week. Uh, the persecuted church, and this letter is written to a, I guess would be a, a church living dangerously, is what I have entitled this today, a church that lives dangerously uh, where Satan's throne is. This church is beginning to be linked inseparably to the world. In other words, you can't really tell much difference between this church and looking at the world. As we go through this letter, we'll note that the that uh, all have pretty much the same components, all seven churches. We could follow the exact same uh, outline uh, written with just these seven words that I'm going to give you today and just fill in the blanks for whatever church it is. So first I want you to notice the correspondent of to, the, to the one who writes, verse 12 says, to the angel or to the leader, the messenger, the one who will take this letter back to the church at Pergamum probably one of their pastors, it is believed, or one of the elders or church leaders of the church, right? And this is, of course, the Lord Jesus telling John to write. John is the one pinning this. John is the one being taken through this experience and this vision and told what to do. He is the one who picks up uh, the pen, as it were, and puts the words that Jesus gives him, and he says, write this. Uh, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, and I've noted this Every time we begin with a reference to the author, this is a typical correspondence way. The, 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 the writer is at the first of the letter instead of like today. Modern correspondence ends with the, the, our, the writer's name at the end, but this is different. And so we know this from chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, we go back to chapter 1. The vision of Jesus Christ is described in verse 16 in different ways. And so each of these letters takes one of those phrases and this one happens to be a sharp two-edged sword. So the Lord is describing as he's holding the leadership of the church in his hand and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And uh, this is really not a good sign. Now remember, now this is a church. Think about a real church, a real congregation. And it is believed that these churches were uh, a little bit more than the churches of, say, Ephesus when John I mean, when uh, Paul actually wrote to those church, to that church, or some of those real small churches, it said they had 10 or 12 people in there, maybe 15. These churches may have had a considerable amount more because of where they were and the time that has lapsed and how Christianity has begun to spread. So imagine this church, like any church, is receiving a letter from the last remaining apostle, John uh, the Apostle, and they are hearing from him and this is said to have come directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, with that in mind, when he says, uh, I, I come with it, uh, as, he, as he says in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. This is not going to be a friendly letter. Uh, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, well, what is that? What is he actually beginning to give us? 
uh, with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, perhaps his like Hebrews 4.12 says, uh, For the word of God is, uh, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the word of God coming out of his mouth. His mouth is like a sharp two-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword to speak of uh, in, in this kind of a fashion. Probably means, which we will see, is a, a, is a, is a word or a warning of judgment that is coming. The sword is an instrument of judging, of falling on those who are deserving of that judgment. And then we also find the same phrase used in Revelation chapter 19, in verse 15 of, of, of chapter 19. Jesus Christ has returned uh, in, in that particular section. It says, Heaven's opened in verse 11, a white horse, and the one who is on it is called Faithful and True. He comes in judgment, making war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and so forth, and in verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp, there it is, a sharp two-edged sword. And so here it tells you what it is. So that in Revelation, it tells you why it's like that. It's so that he may smite the nations. It is a sword of judgment. So when we find this in Revelation, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword in verse 12, I think it clearly is giving to us that this letter is not going to be a happy one. It's not going to be a promising one. It is a threatening one. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is writing to them as a word of warning. Remember in the second church uh, last week, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, that was an encouragement to that church. But this is not an encouragement to this church, for this is speaking of judgment that is about to come. And remember, now Christ is seen in Revelation chapter 1 when John's told to write the image that he sees. He sees uh, the one walking amongst the golden lampstands. And so speaking of his control and care as he moves through his church and his protection over the leadership, here is the first negative introduction because this is a church that is facing judgment. Now imagine now a church facing judgment. It doesn't seem to have a good ring to it. So the church at Pergamon was in serious danger. And that danger was going to come from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. This particular sword is a sword of judgment. So it's clear from the letter that we're looking at today that uh, Pergamon was a compromising church. Obviously a church made up of Gentiles primarily who have been converted over to paganism. They had uh, no doubt, been converted to Christ, but there were some uh, transformations or, or proclaimed transformations there that were not real or genuine transformations. So disaster is looming on the horizon, and it's not just in the community they're in. It is from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if you look back at history, you can understand this kind of thing. It's the sweeping history of Christianity in the Western world. You'll see churches uh, that became worldly and Man, this is always a danger of this. In fact, as I have said a couple of times, these churches represent types of churches through the church age. And this actually, some of the, these churches actually line up. If you go in order, they pretty much line up from, from 90 A.D. all the way up till today. These kinds of churches, one will come, the next one will come, then the next one will come, almost exactly the way they're laid out. So this particular time period of the Church of Pergamum represents a time period from around, say, 260 to 70 A.D. to around 650 to 750 A.D. And you see that uh, when you begin to look at the church history. 
And so this is a very real church. It's a very real church, and the correspondent there is the Lord Jesus Christ using John to write this message. Now, second, I want to look at the city. And the city we we come to is it's a city, and, and without getting all specific about where it's located and, and all that kind of... I just want to give you a couple of particulars about the city. This uh, particular city is <coughs> less than 100 miles from Ephesus. It's... Uh, it's uh, it's in the same order as we're, we're talking about moving through. You have Ephesus first, and you have Smyrna next, and you have Pergamum, and go on. So they're on like a postal route. Ephesus is the starting point, and then you move about 50 miles. And so each of these churches that we're going to look at is about 50, 55 miles of each other. But the word Pergamum uh, literally means parchment. You know what a parchment is. Parchment is a writing material developed from uh, animal skin. Uh, and, and apparently it was developed here in this area, and the city took on the name of that, that name, Parchment. So when you look at Pergamon, it means Parchment. But it was an important religious center where the pagan cults worshiping there. Now, this is a terrible time of church history because the, the churches are, are right there in the midst of such paganism and such false worship. And some of these churches pick up these tendencies or habits and it is a terrible thing. But this is a, a center where pagan cults worship there. There's all kinds of names of the gods here. And I don't even want to mention all of the names of the gods here, like Zeus and many of the others. But the, there's a lot of false worship there. I don't want to give them any publicity. But the worship of the Roman emperor was very big. And we saw that last week in that uh, Smyrna church. Uh, temple was built, uh, the ancient Rome world, to build a temple to Caesar. It was built in 29 A.D., Right about the time, of course, was the flourishing of the ministry of Christ. And so the emperor worship had reached a point of cultic form. Um, and so these churches here in this community also had the pagan worship of the false gods, but they also had Caesar to worry about. Uh, this became the capital for Caesar worship. The city was more given over to that than any other city in the ancient Roman territory. They had developed along with Caesar worship all the pagan forms of other kinds of worship. And as long as you worship Caesar, you were allowed to do whatever you wanted to do. You could worship any god. They didn't care as long as you worshiped Caesar first. And this is what made it difficult for the true born-again church or Christian. They could not do that. They worshiped Christ and him alone and refused on that one day of year where they had to get pretty much uh, pr uh, proof that they had done uh, what the Governor, the government requires you had to burn incense to Caesar and therefore uh, profess to worship him as, as a deity. And uh, those who believed in Christ and worshiped Christ could not do that. They would have been uh, uh, losing their job, their citizenship in the city, as well as possible death. And many of them did that. So in the city of Pergamon, we have a large university also. It's in the place of uh, notoriety as far as books. It's, it is said that there was some 200 to 225,000 volumes of books. That doesn't mean that much to us today, except that these books would have been handwritten. That says something to me. And so the city was pretty much a, a, a city that uh, ha had a lot going for itself. But the church that's there, number three, the church. I want to look at not just the correspondent in the city, but also the church. The church, you can imagine... Uh, had a beginning we don't actually know and I, I love to read commentaries on on this and they spend pages and pages and pages 
with the same conclusion all the way through, we just don't know. If it's possible that it was from uh, Paul being in the area as he passed through in Acts chapter 16 near that area and founded the church of Ephesus, this is not far from Ephesus. So those could have been, we see in Acts chapter 19, that the Apostle Paul had a wonderful ministry in the Ephesus, and so it was far-reaching, and so it's very likely that something was happened there. But the church was founded because it was a very pagan atmosphere completely opposite to the Christian testimony. In the middle of this, situated in the middle of this terrific, uh, terrific in the bad sense, of pagan worship, all this going on is this little church uh, that is situated there, and Christ addresses this letter there. It says, you will note, is look at what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell. Uh, remember, I'm talking about the church. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's got his operations all over the world, but he's got his throne there. Quite an amazing statement. Make no mistake about it. This would be a very dangerous place to have a church. In the place of his operation, his power was unleashed throughout this city. I can't even imagine the pressures upon this church of people coming in that hold to that. And we see that here. They come in there and they frankly uh, persuade and, and try to pressure the church. And so that's what's going on in this church, which leads me to number four, the commendation, which again is found in verse 13. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. They existed at the very headquarters of satanic opposition. And people say, well, how, how would, could you interpret it? Well, I just you look at what's, what's actually there, and that's what's there. We may not know all of the ramifications of what he's talking about, but it sounds very dangerous to me. Satan had obviously established as the center of his operation there. We don't know why he had done this. It just says it's there. A mark of permanent residence, by the way it says it here, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast. The implication is Satan dwells there as well. When you dwell where Satan's throne is, a mark of permanent residence is going to be Satan's throne is going to be a tremendous influence upon that church. The very throne of Satan. Remember, the Smyrna church had the synagogue of Satan. Uh in which they tried to pervert Judaism. The throne of Satan was this Gentile-based false religion, so Satan has set up his, his operation here, and this little church was feeling, as you could imagine, the heat of it, and it was in some way giving in to it. And that's the problem we have with this church. But as I said before, true faith is not fragile. Only false faith is. In fact, Steve Lawson used to say the faith that fizzles from the beginning or from the start was flawed from the beginning. Or the <laughs> so anyway, I'll get back to that in just a minute. I just lost my place and where I'm where I'm going. Uh, but the faith that is is going to be the lasting strong faith does not fizzle. It does not burn out. It does not uh, uh, have a, a, a sense of. Uh, demeaning or, or getting away from the truth. It stays right there. So the faith is going to be able to stand against this. If it's the true faith, some of them, however, who have attached themselves to the church and are falling into the pressures of this do not have true faith. And so we, we're having to meet the enemy on his ground, and it's not easy. But they would succeed because the true church will succeed. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Well, here is the gates of hell living here in this city, and it cannot overtake the church. In fact, the church is being commended here. But there are some there. Then this church that is growing here is a real church. It's a saved church waging an uncompromising a compromising war right at the very throne of Satan. And I hope I'm not uh, getting uh, too excited because I know when I do, I talk too fast. But they were doing well enough to be commended. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith. They were true, and say it again, their faith is not fragile. It is indestructible. It survives everything, even the gates of hell coming against it. Now, just what is Satan's throne? Well, it could refer to a lot of things. It could refer to the, the emperor worship. It could refer to uh, the, the worship of, of some of these false gods, Zeus. Or, uh, or whoever they are, but there's another element of that, that fascinates me is that the worship of Caesar was was also the very basis of this, and it is said that the the worship here was very powerful in this city, that everyone seemed to be worshiping something. It was a place of worship, and so in the city of Pergamos there was a medical school, and there was a famous they were famous for their medicine. And so involved in that, in the mingling of this medicine, of course, was a lot of superstition. And the emblem of the idol of a certain god that they had there was a snake. And this snake uh, became the emblem, and they wrapped around the snake around the pole as the, the, the emblem for this worship. The ancient god that this is known for is called the god of healing. And when you went to the temple of this god of healing... You went there to be healed. Now, in the temple, with all of this saying and the superstition, here's what they would do. Now, think about worshiping in this place. See if you could do this. They would go into this temple. Uh, harmless snakes were all over the temple. And in order to be healed, now listen to this, you had to go in there and lie down and stay there. You slept on the temple floor, and while you slept, the, the, this power that is there, obviously a satanic power, would crawl over your body and infuse you, it is said, with the healing power. Boy, does that sound satanic? Does that sound like it's coming straight from Satan himself, right from the old serpent himself? So when you hear of this, the serpent God, it just sounds satanic. And so that's the kind of thing that is going on here. And in the middle of all that powerful work of Satan was this church. And I love this because he says, and you hold fast my name, you did not deny me. That's the commendation. You hold fast my name. Man, they are a really strong church. My name always means uh, what he's talking about here is the person and work of Christ. In other words, you have been faithful to me. He's talking about a personal faithfulness to Christ. And then he says, you did not deny my faith. You did not deny my truth, my gospel, my message. Nothing. You didn't deny me. You never denied who I was or what uh, the faith is that being proclaimed here. My truth. You never deviated in your theology. You never deviated in your fidelity. You believed the truth. You sustained the very belief system that had been used as the very beginning. In other words, you didn't compromise. The courage of their faith is evident. In fact, notice all the mys here. Look at verse 13. Uh, we, uh, in verse 13, let me, let me get to it. Uh, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. 
who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so it's a very personal thing. He identifies Antipas. We, we don't really know who this was. Again, I could spend much time talking about him, but I don't really know anything about him. Others say, uh, tradition says, that he was a pastor. And fascinating, it, the tradition also says he was burned to death inside of a brass bull. They had created a brass bull hollowed out and they set it on fire and put him in it and uh, so he's saying to them you you in the spite of that you you beheld that if you you did not deny me even at that time even in the days of that meaning that was probably going on all the time and antipas is referred to as my witness my faithful one but look at what it says was killed among you taken out from among you. Probably he was the pastor. But then I want to get to the the condemnation. Uh, We call the commendation number four, but five is the condemnation. Pergamos, uh, for the most part, was faithful, but then comes the condemnation. This is Christ saying, imagine Christ saying this about the church you're attending. I have a few things against you. I I just, that bothers me to read that, knowing where this letter is coming from. So much good, so faithful, so strong, in the midst of such a perverse, wicked, evil, vile community. So faithful. But I have this against you because there are some of you who hold the teachings of Baal. You see that in in verse 14? Against you because you have some there who hold to the teachings of of Balaam and who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block. This is what, you know, we could go through Leviticus and read all that is there. But this is all that he wants us to know about them. You have these people who believe these false things and, and you are allowing it. Basically, is the, the condemnation. You as a church are allowing this. You're making them feel comfortable. I have a few things against you too. Namely, because you have some who hold the teachings of Balaam. You have them there. It's your responsibility. You're not putting them out of your church. You're not dealing with it. In other words, your church just can't be lazy and always just... Just uh, uh, ignore and you got to be careful with these people coming in. You guard the front door, and you won't have as many going out the back door. It wasn't a question of their denying the Lord's name. They wouldn't do that. It wasn't a question of denying the faith. They wouldn't do that. They've already been commended for that. It was a question of being soft and tolerant of evil, to things that are not right in the church. So there are some that are either turning a blind eye to this, or some that are not. So he identifies two things. One identified with the Old Testament, Balaam, and one identified with the New Testament, Nicolaitans. So you hold to the teachings of them. You don't. We don't have time to go back and look at all that, as I said. But what the problem with Balaam was, the doctrine of Balaam and his teaching, is they put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed and to commit acts of immorality. Balaam was a prophet, and Balak... The king of Moab wanted to get rid of Israel. The Moabites and Israelites were always after each other, so Balak wanted to get rid of Israel. So he went to Balaam, who was a prostitute prophet, and he could be bought, and he paid him to curse Israel, and he tried that three times, and he couldn't curse them because each time it turned out to be a blessing. So what did he do? He brought a compromising plot along to bring in the Moabite women and sexually seduce the men and bring them into a point of intermarriage. And this actually worked. They could be described, the life of Moab could be, to a simple, a life of Moab to a simple statement, 
when they begin to marry, it could be described as fornication, idolatrous feasts. They could be described as gluttonous orgies or, or just all kinds of debauchery and prostitution. And Balaam tried to work this plot and have the women of Moab seduce the men of Israel into intermarriage. And then he could bring Israel into a blasphemous union with Satan. You think, wow, that worked? How could that work with a strong church? Well, it did. You want to know something? That's the danger here. The doctrine of Balaam is the teaching that the people of God can intermarry with heathen and thus become like the heathen are. In other words, we we accept this. We tolerate it because we don't want to offend And I'm afraid there's a lot of churches today that are walking this line, if not already crossed over it, I can't be the judge of that, that are are too friendly with the world. They've taken on the world's tactics and customs too much. We've become too much intermarrying with, with the unbeliever. We don't want to offend them. I've actually been in staff meetings where the meetings itself was to discuss how can we be more friendly to those visitors coming in. What can we do? Well, the result of that was we give in. We we don't have a podium. We have a different kind of podium. We come off the stage. We take off our tie and our coat. We loosen our shirt. We come down on the ground where they are. We uh, we have a, 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 a praise band behind us. You know the, you know the routine. We, we give in to these things. To, this is what the friendly of our churches. Man, we welcome you. We're just all here to worship. Well, is that really what's going on? It's a very dangerous place to be compromising with the world. And this is this is saying there were some people in that church saying it's okay. It's okay to enter intermix with the with the pagan system. We're not to be separate. We're to be we're to be with them. We're all one. Let me tell you what a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place to be. In fact, that's that meeting I was referring to. And how can we be more friendly to the person coming in? Because we were having, some weeks we had a hundred visitors. And so the, the things we had to do that were, were absolutely ridiculous. I remember sitting there thinking, what is going? What are we doing? And here's some of the, I've mentioned some of the things. But another one of the things was, Reduce the sermon from 40 minutes to 15. Just 15 minutes. You can't develop anything in 15 minutes. Uh, But this is the danger here. We begin to intermarry and we begin to take on their characteristics instead of inviting them in and understanding the scriptures that says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Sure, we want them in our worship, but we want them to come in and see what it means to be truly involved in the worship of a holy, just, righteous God. That's what we want. We want the service itself to to offend them in a sense that it draws into this worship the intolerable attitude of sin and evil. There can be no compromise. There can be no mixing. And so the people are doing this. And so one more thing, verse 15, the Nicolaitans, the same thing. Uh, they were, uh, it's the same kind of thing. We, we don't know exactly where that goes, but like we said last week, probably back to the man named Nick, uh, Nicholas. Acts chapter 6 was appointed as a deacon and later defected and became an apostate. Uh, but he was no doubt an immoral and, and headed up all kinds of things that were just not right. So there's always been Nicolaitans who in the name of, they pervert the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they 
They set their own standard. And there's always those who are linked to Baalism. And so we have to be so careful of these in our church today. And I know I could go on and on and on on this, and I'm not, but I want to give you the command in verse 16. The command is simple. Repent. It's very simple. I don't even have to spend any time on that. We all know what it means. This is, this is sin, and if you don't repent, do something. I'm coming quickly. In other words, it means turn around and go the other way. Forget it. Do not do this. This is a warning from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a reason for that. It's because we compromise too much. And then the counsel he gives them is this. The counsel is in verse 17 of chapter 2. And look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this is, this is interesting. He basically is saying, and this has been in most of the letters, listen, don't miss this. You've got to hear this message. And there's three things that he's given to him as far as an overcome. But look how he phrases this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Well, who is the one who overcomes? It is the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called the overcomer. Our faith, our belief, it's to the true Christians. It says he here is promising these things to the true Christians. Now here they are, three things. Number one, the hidden manna. To him who comes, I will give the hidden manna. Wow, well what is that? Well the hidden manna is for true believers. I'll give the hidden manna. And what the hidden manna is, well you know the manna was, it was the bread. Uh, the closest thing that we could call it would be, uh, I, I think many pastors say this almost as a joke, angel food cake. Manna was some kind of honey, uh, honey bread out of heaven, directly from heaven to feed the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it was delivered to them, and uh, it was uh, it was called the hidden manna. Why? Well, according to Exodus 16:33, when they traveled, they took the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark, they hid some of this manna. What did that represent? Well, I think it represented the bread of life. Who was that? Well, we found that in John chapter 8. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So just as Israel received manna from heaven as his food, the true believer says this, I have Jesus Christ, the true bread of life. And But look at the second thing. This is an interesting thing here. Not only the hidden manna, but it says in verse 17, I will give him a white stone. A white stone? Well, what is that? Well, a lot of people say, well, it's... You really don't know what a white stone because he doesn't tell us. It could be a lot of things from the uh, the breastplate on the priest, or it could be uh, uh, a, the, the, a thing that became known in, in, in the Roman Empire as the, the victors won the game. Whatever the game was being held, it was not uncommon for the victor to be given a, 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 like a, a trophy or a white stone. And the white stone was his admission passed to the festival that was going to be held following the games for all those who were the winners. Could that be what he's talking about? Well, we don't know. <laughs> Again, we don't know what that white stone is. Is everybody in heaven going to have a white stone? I don't know. Just going by what little information we have here. But the third thing he promises is a new name written on the stone. And this new name written on the stone, uh, it would be like that trophy because it would be engraved on the what they did and what they what they achieved, and their name would be on the stone. And it's amazing to me, and I know that a couple of authors I read said this, that how many people come up and say, well, well, what is that new name? Well, we don't know what the new name, because we don't know what it is. It says, a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So, if it was going to be 
that I knew what that stone was, it would say, no one knows except William Rogers and those who receive it. But it doesn't say that, so I don't know what it says. But I do know this. It's a warning to the church. We don't want to be a compromising church. You want to be a part of a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church that is not a compromising church. So there are issues here uh, that, that warn us that the Lord is going to come against them and smite them with a, uh, the word, the sharp two-edged sword. We want to be part of the true church, a church that is truly glorifying His name. <coughs> My question today is this. How would your church rate in this kind of uh, look from the very flames of fire that described as his eyes looking through the church that you're attending. Would he see these kinds of things, being faithful, steadfast, uncompromising of people who want to uh, divert and, and to change and to alter the Word of God? What would he see? This is a good question. So I hope that you will stay with us. I thank you again today for joining us as we have looked at uh, Hope for the Heart and the Book of Revelation. And next week we'll take a look at another church, and that is the church uh, of uh, Thyatira. And that's an interesting name, but uh, thank you again for joining us today.